Welcome back to the podcast and after a cracking episode last week with John Power, I'm back this week with Sam Herlihy, frontman of Hope of the States, a band that were lauded in the early 2000s with two cracking albums, The Lost Riots and Left. The band also went through some tough times when lead guitarist Jimmy Lawrence tragically took his own life six months before the debut album was released. We spoke about how that affected the band going forward. As well as that, we also spoke about Sam's other musical projects after Hope of the States and then what he went on to, to do and does for this current day, which is he's a restaurant owner, he owns Pigeon in Hackney in East London and he also owns a sandwich shop called Sons and Daughters, which is in King's Cross in London. Hope you enjoy the episode. It was really good speaking to Sam. Again, another hero of mine. If you're enjoying the episodes, please leave a comment on any of the podcast platforms that you're listening to the podcast and get in touch on all the social media platforms that more importantly than ever, just tell your friends about the podcast and make sure that we can get this growing. So, anyway, on with the show. Enjoy this episode with Sam Herlihy of Hope the State. On the podcast today, I have Sam Herlihy, who was frontman of Hope of the States in the noughties, one of, the, one of my all-time favourite bands of that time. After Hope of the States, he quit. He did some other different musical projects and then he, along with his friend, opened a restaurant called Pigeon in London and he also has a sandwich shop and he had a podcast as well. We're going to touch on all of this plus whatever else there is hiding in the, the dark depths of Sam Herlihy's life. But I uh, what I like to do at the start, Sam, just kind of go back to a young Sam Herlihy growing up. Where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a youngster? Um, I was born in Welling Garden City, um, which um, I don't remember a huge amount about, to be honest. But um, yeah, so I lived there until I was like three and then we moved to Chichester um, in West Sussex. And yeah, basically grew up here, moved to London when I was in the band. And then when the band finished, um, sort of had a bleak sort of year or so after the band split up in London and then sort of moved back to Chichester with my tail between my legs. Uh, and now I live here. Um, you know, uh, I've got three kids and bring up my kids here. It's a nice place to bring up kids. It's a nice bit of the world for sure. Yeah, I've, I've been a couple of times where... Um... My wife's family, they're, they're for Crawley, so we're doing that way every summer. And okay. we like to get down kind of to the coast. Been to Celsi, which isn't that far from Chichester, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's where my um my wife is from. So my uh my father-in-law ran a video shop in Celsi for years. He used to yeah. run the social club at the um caravan site. Yeah, well, that's where we used to go, yeah. Yeah, uh, which I think back in the sort of 60s, 70s was sort of hotbed of bad behaviour, which uh, which I guess he was responsible for, for getting everyone boozed up or whatever. Um, right. Yeah, that tells you, tells you the vibe. And that's where my, 
the first band I was in actually, Tim, um, the guitarist, lived in Selsey. So yeah, I used to spend a lot of time in Selsey. That that was kind of the next thing on my list. It was the first band is the first band Scarper, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, what was the script there? Because to what I to what I was led to believe you were kind of based in Oxford. Is that where did you travel there through management or something? Yeah, it was so basically we were in school and I got a guitar and I sort of I had a couple of guitar lessons, but I'd never really sort of wanted to learn anybody else's songs. Like A I wasn't very good and B I didn't sort of have the patience for it and um sort of wanted to uh, I guess do our own stuff. Um and so we put this band together um with sort of school friends and we started playing gigs in village halls around Chichester. Um and you know, for, when you're that age, I guess like 13, 14, 15, like there's nowhere to go. You can't get into the pubs quite yet. Um, so it was sort of, we would put these things on and, you know, it's like a fiver entry or something and, and everyone would come and um, basically get drunk. But, you know, it was something to do. I don't, you know, they're not coming to see us play, but, but it was enough that you felt like, hey, you know, this is like a thing and, and you can be a musician and you can, and people will listen to your music. We weren't playing covers or anything um and sort of through that one of the people in sort of another local band his sister was a a photographer in oxford called zoe zoe shardlow and she was friends with sort of all of the bands in oxford at the time and like supergrass were just happening at that point and she was friends with the people from ride and anyway she was sort of in that whole world and she had a flat that was above the zodiac in oxford right Uh, amazing amazing venue and she she sort of said, oh, I think you're great and I'll be your manager. And, you know, I was sort of not knowing quite that what, what that meant. But it was like, oh, well, come to Oxford. And I still look at it as like just one of the most amazing things. I mean, I can't think how old she must have been. She must have been in her 20s. But she would have, you know, the five of us to stay in her flat. You know, we'd all sleep on the floor. And, you know, we'd sort of, she'd blag us into the Zodiac and we'd go and see you know, Ride and the Candy Skins and early Supergraph gigs and, and all of that and the Jericho Tavern in Oxford as well. And we were sort of these sort of just idiotic little kids and somehow mm-hmm. our parents let us do it and she was willing to part with us. Um, and, you know, we, we'd rehearse and, and, and work and, you know, and try and, you know, get better and play songs and write write new stuff. And um, But so we were sort of, we would hang out in Oxford, but we weren't based in Oxford. We were definitely here playing in Village Halls and, um, you know, I don't think, can't think whether we actually played anywhere else, but it was sort of through her and through that she knew, she was sort of part of the reason Supergrass got signed. She was yapping at Parlophone about how they should sign this band Supergrass. And so through that, we ended up getting a development deal through Parlophone, and which basically meant we had some money to buy some gear and we made a, you know, a seven inch record that I think John Peel played and got some slightly bigger gigs in Brighton and um, yeah, basically spent money on, on equipment, which then our drummer, who was a bit of a tearaway then sold so he could buy more weed. Mm-hmm. So that was basically it. What were your parents like then? Were your parents supportive of you kind of getting into music? Were they quite happy? Yeah. Well, yeah. 100. Uh, I was so, uh, and I am, you know, it's like so blessed. My parents are amazing for that stuff. Um, my dad had been in bands when he was, a kid and his dad definitely not being as supportive of him um 
you know, I think at one point he basically had to leave his band to go to college or something. Um, so my dad was always like, you know, giving me records to listen to and saying, you know, oh, you got to listen to Bob Dylan, you got to listen to Captain Beefheart, you got to listen to, um, you know, like my the thing I was sort of say is like I, I'd never sort of known you had the Beatles till I was sort of fifteen or something because mm-hmm. my dad hated them, so it was all like weirder stuff. That, and, and a lot of it that I absolutely loved. The one I never got was Frank Zappa. Like my dad was listening to Frank Zappa and trying right. to push that on him. I wasn't having that. Um, but, you know, Frank, B, uh, sorry, um, Captain Beefheart, Bob Dylan, and um, Sid Barrett era Floyd. He was always like, the first Pink Floyd record's brilliant. The rest of it's absolute garbage, which, um, mm-hmm. which I don't know whether I entirely agree with, but don't disagree with it particularly. But... So it was like records and, and you know, you want to be in a band and, you know, he would help me to, you know, buy an amp or a guitar or, and then as it went on, like, I think he was sort of into it so much and, you know, he'd sort of, I was really lucky, like he, he'd come back and he'd sort of, after work, he'd have gone to Denmark Street and got in a conversation with a weird person in a music shop and um got talked into buying like a space echo or whatever and he'd come back and, you know, sort of, because he was away in the week, like I only saw him at weekends and, He'd come in and be like, um, hey, come outside, come and look in the boot. And it's like, there's a space echo in there, which is like, you know, you know, the tape echo machine. That was amazing. And so it was always sort of, I guess, that up to if I was going to be a musician, it was never going to be sort of some sort of super straight ahead thing because that wasn't sort of the music I listened to or the stuff that I was mm-hmm. inspired by. Because I guess that's where it starts, you know, you know, stuff that's handed down to you. And so he was handing me down that. And then my brother, who was three years old, two, three years older than me, you know, he got into Nirvana and it was like Nirvana was the first thing. That was the reason I got a guitar was Nirvana. So yeah. um, that's where it started, I guess. What happened then with, with Scarpa? How did how did things progress with him and how did that kind of turn into Hope of the States? Um, so, yeah, we sort of did the seven inch and nothing really happened and, and we weren't really very good. Like I, I played guitar and... Um, uh, then as time went on, got into different types of music and started playing piano and then sort of organ and we got a sampler and um, did another single and the guy who'd been with us at Parlophone then left and set up a management company. So he was managing us and, you know, trying to make things happen and nothing was really happening. Um, and I guess this was sort of Brit poppy time, but we didn't sound like that. We are a bit weirder than that. Um bit more sort of bluesy and darker but with samples i guess like the beta band was sort of a big part of it like when we were with parlophone we were doing demos in the studio and justin our manager came in one day with this 12 inch of this record and he was like you gotta hear this just sign this band the beta band he didn't sign them whoever else signed him and it was like hearing um champion virgins the first beta band ep was just like blew my mind and we were just like oh my god like what are we doing all this punk stuff's got to stop. Um, so it was sort of like, I guess, sort of, and I was really into spiritualized at the time. And Tim Fairplay, who's now a DJ, mm-hmm. was the guitarist. Um, and him and I would sit and listen to records, like vinyl records, for ages. And that's when I really first got into the Beatles and Bowie and stuff. And um, yeah, a lot of spiritualized and the Beta Band. So that was sort of where it came from. And then we just sort of ran out of steam really and people ended up wanting to do different things and Tim got a bit bored and was more into like DJing. And so basically we used to rehearse in this old social club of the gas board in Chichester and it was like on an industrial estate. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's been knocked down now. Um, but we used to rehearse in there and we had, I think, three months left on the lease and everyone had left. So basically there was just this social club on an industrial estate full of gear and all everybody else in the band had left. And I was like not sort of willing to quit and also probably, you know, a bit ego hurt, I guess. <laughs> like, you know, because you're like, oh, I'm going to be in a band and, and, you know, everyone probably thinks you're a cocky twit, which I probably was, but I was just like, I don't know what else to do. So I'd go there sort of most nights and try and write songs and then try and sing, which I'd never done before. Mm-hmm. Um and basically, I bit. I was in there for months, like just by myself every night, and it's pretty spooky. Like it was all dark, and you were the only person there on an industrial estate in the middle of the night, and just sort of sit there, chain smoking, trying to write songs. And um, eventually, after I just delete stuff over and over again because it wasn't good enough, and I really wanted it to be sort of as emotional and big and stuff as the stuff I was listening to at the time, which was definitely like spiritualized and. Um, Godspeed at that point. Um, and I just wanted it to be sort of heavy and everything I made it sounded all really small and a bit silly. And I want I didn't want it to sound like that. So it was just constant delete, delete, delete. And then eventually I wrote one song, um, which was like, oh my God, this is like, actually, maybe this is something. And then from there it was like, oh, maybe there is something here. And then ended up, um, yeah, getting... Jimmy and Ant in the band, and that's where it started. Yeah. So, how did how did Jimmy and Ant come about? Were were they in Chichester as well? Yeah, yeah. So they were, and and I knew them um, vaguely. You know, sort of say hello in the pub. They're a bit older than me. Um, And Jimmy and I always had a slightly fractious relationship initially because um, we um, we both like the same girl. Uh, who I ended up marrying. Um, but, you know, he went out with her, I went out with her, it was all that sort of thing. So I was always yeah. like, oh, Jimmy, he's a twat. Um, but anyway, we ended up meeting uh, and talking sort of properly for the first time at a granddaddy gig at um, uh, the Wedgwood Rooms in Portsmouth. Uh-huh. And they were there, and I think Jimmy just split up with with, with Abby, my now wife, Um and so we were sort of, oh, God, yeah, isn't she awful? And, da, 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 uh, <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, uh, yeah, complaining and licking our wounds <laughs> together, I guess. Um, but we got to talking and and it was, I, you know, was in the rehearsal room by myself and I really wanted to play with other people. And I sort of said, we had this really uncomfortable conversation where I was like, oh, do you want to come and like come to the rehearsal room and like, jam and it's like oh like that word is so gross and and they both pulled a face and I was like really embarrassed because I didn't want to use that word but I'm like what other word is there because yeah you know because if you say oh do you want to like come and play it feels like you're knocking on a friend's door when you're like in primary school so so there was it was a bit uncomfortable but they were like yeah yeah okay cool and then they came and um we had a rehearsal and it was like, you know, first rehearsal, everything was set out in the first rehearsal. It's like, oh, Jimmy's going to be this guy and Ant's going to be this guy and I'm going to be this guy. And, you know, all of the good and the bad is in the first rehearsal, which I guess maybe it is for most bands. But um, mm-hmm. that's, that, yeah, so that's where it sort of started. And how did the, you then flesh out the rest of the band? How did the, the rest of the boys come and board? Um, We had... A drummer that very much didn't work out. Uh, he was a bit of a nightmare. He played our first show we did. The first show we did was in a um, 
old church that's now an art gallery and we put it on ourselves and we like made the tickets and the flyers and mm-hmm. you know we just we sort of did it all ourselves and it was a bit weird like we had a violinist and a cellist and projections and you know we yeah. really went for it straight off the bat and we were basically recording a record at the time ourselves because Ant's really into recording and and we had the gear to do it so we were sort of doing that making a record and so that drummer quit uh which was a really good thing and then we got Simon through can't really remember just through a friend and Simon came in and was just like oh my god like this is what a real drummer is so he was brilliant and then we had a bassist who was a nightmare um when we were demoing it was a bit later I guess like we ended up in toe rag where you know like the white stripes were doing it was like the whole toe rag vine uh tape tape analog analog thing Anthony was working there as an assistant so he got downtime so we would go in when there was downtime and we'd sneak in a pro tools rig into toe rag <laughs> which Lee and the owner probably wouldn't have been very happy about because the only thing digital under that roof was like a CD burner. Um, but we'd sneak in a Pro Tools rig so that we <laughs> were like, we're rubbish and we can't actually play. But um, And we'd go in there for like, you know, 24-hour sessions. You know, we'd go and stay up all night recording and then drive home. And mm-hmm. um, and we did a whole bunch of stuff then. And and then, yeah, the sort of basis guy didn't work out. He was a difficult dude. And... Um, I basically rang Paul, who had been in Scarpa, um, in Scarpa and Fierce Black, which is what Scarpa became after that, um, and rang him up. And I was like, oh, we're doing this stuff, and it's really good, and I really need a bassist. And I know you sort of quit music or whatever, but will you come back? And he was like, oh, for fuck's sake. But he did, thank God. So, right. And we found Jimmy had found Big Mike. He played violin. Um, they went to college together in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, it was like we – we worked really, really, really hard. Like we were, we were in rehearsals sort of three nights a week down in sort of near Chichester, in this rehearsal room in Ford, which is like near the open prison. Um, and we just worked really hard. Like, I mean, they'd get on the train and come down from London to rehearse three times a week. And we'd be in there for hours, just working, 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 trying to get better. Um, and then we did the, yeah, like the black dollar bills demo, um, and then that's we found our manager, and then it all happened after that, I guess. Yeah, and um, I mean the, the first gig I, I had that on my list as well because it's to to do that as a first gig to put that much work in as a new band, the, everything that you had with the projectors and all that, which became part of the Hope of the States stage show going forward anyway. Yeah. But to do that at such an an early stage in the band must have been you must have had that vision right for the start. Yeah, I think it was. I don't even know whether I don't know whether it's vision. It was just we just thought you can do this, so why wouldn't you? Was mm-hmm. sort of the thing, and and it, it, I don't mean that to sound sort of arrogant or whatever. I really don't. I just we were just like really into all this stuff. It was really exciting. Like it was. Yeah. It was, oh, my God, your packaging can be this and a gig can look like this. And, um, you know, and the tickets to your gig don't have to be shit, you know, bits of paper, just your name on it. So they were, like, printed on, like, clear acetate. And it was, like, cost a fortune, like, ridiculous. But 
I think we always had that thing of just like this stuff's fun and it was interesting and it was exciting to do it. And it was like the songs were really important and the writing of them and making them better and learning to play them better. That was really, really important. And that was what we did. And we worked really hard to do it. But it was like, why would you give it to somebody else to do all this other stuff you could do? It feels like it's creative and it's fun and it's, you know, it wasn't anything original. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I knew Godspeed had projections. It was probably from them that we did it, but yeah. it was all the beat band um, before them. And it was just that thing of like, oh, we can do all of this. And then I think at the time we were starting was when everything was like quite small. It was all like, you know, garage rock stuff and the white stripes and which we loved loads of that. But I mean, I remember one day we went, we were in Torag and there was this box of tapes next to the desk and it was like, oh, what's this? And it just said elephant on it. And so we we took the tapes out and put them on the tape machine and started, you know, listening to it. And it was it was elephant before, you know, six months before elephant came out. And yeah. we were like, oh, this is awful. This sounds like fucking Led Zeppelin or something, which we didn't like Led Zeppelin. We loved the white stripes before. But to us, it was like, oh, God, it was a bit cock rock or whatever, you know. But, but still, <laughs> but to be fair, we did know the minute you hear Seven Nation Army, um, it was like, oh, my God. Um, is that what it's called? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bum, 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 bum. yeah. And I mean, the minute we heard that, we we're like, Jesus Christ, this record's going to be massive because it was, you know, in the midst of all this Led Zeppi stuff that we didn't like very much. But mm. so we were sort of, we always wanted to be different from that. And it wasn't what we were into, even though we liked a lot of it, but we never wanted to be that, you know. Obviously, another thing you touched on there was the Teletext, um, Planet Sound, first band, yeah. for what I'm led to believe, first band I ever to get. Five out of five on Planet Sound, and that's yeah. <laughs> and that's also where your your manager found you as well. Yeah. So you owe your your career to Teletext Planet Sound. Yeah, to John Els at um at Teletext. Yeah, who's still a music journalist, still still fighting the fight. So yeah, amazing, lovely, lovely guy, and gave us such a lovely review. Um, yeah, amazing. And what was that review for? Was that for a first single? It was it was for Black Dollar Bills, Black like Dollar just a demo. I think we had, I think it were two songs. I think it was Black Dollar Bills and Three Days in the West or something. Like two of the first, really like the songs that we were like, oh, this is it. You know, this is what we should be doing. And Jimmy was into that. I'd never read Teletext, so you know, no idea. But um, Jimmy sent it to this Planet Sound thing, and then got a phone call from this guy, and he was just like, oh, this guy has rung me up, and he's going mental at me, yelling at me, saying we got to meet him. Uh, and that ended up being Howard, our, our manager. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, pushing on, obviously you were signed to Sony, a million yeah. record deal. Uh, listening to you, I've, I've heard you on a couple of podcasts, you said you had the choice between Rob Stinger and Lucien Grange. Yeah. So, Lucien Grange's name um, rang out to me because he's been brought up in the podcast before. No for such high praise. One of the guys said that he screwed him at royalties for a single. But um, doing a bit of research into them, I've seen 2022 Rob Stringer was voted number two in the Billboard Power 100 and he was beat to that position by Lucien Grange, who's yeah. who's won it five times in the, in the noughties. So, I mean, to be... Up there, getting the choice between the two, you must have been doing something right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think probably the reason that uh, Lucien's number one and Rob's number two is because Lucien was uh, Lucien didn't sign us, so it's probably a big black mark against <laughs> Rob. He did. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, the thing is, it was it was such a weird time, and for us, just you know, it was it was it was tricky because we really liked Rob and Lucien. I, I was kind of into Lucien's vibe because he was just, he felt sort of quite bonkers to me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he was, he was very, very confident. And I think he told me that he could fly if he wanted to and all this, but you know, cause just seemingly cared about music and stuff. And I think we ended up basically a guy came in from Sony when we were arming and arming and sort of yelled at us. And we were just a bit bored by that point. So we were like, all right, okay, well, we'll just mess well just like Sony and get it done. Um, yeah. That was literally, yeah, you know, it's the same deal. And, um, you know, Robert signed a bunch of amazing stuff, you know, super fair animals and the manics and, um, you know, I think all the coral stuff was maybe it was happening at that time as well. Right. Um, you know, he cared about music and, you know, I mean, I, you know, he still messaged Rob on occasion, you know, he's, he's big in the Luton game. So, um, so yeah, I messaged him about the Luton. Um, he's, you know, he's, a, he was always a really, really good dude to us. And another thing was as well was the first people we sent our record to are like, you know, we made an album ourselves, like a sort of demo-y thing, but to us, it was a record initially. Um, and, you know, we sent it to Constellation, Godsby's label. We sent it to Rock Action, Mogwai's label. And that was sort of where we thought we were. And then we got this manager who was fantastic, but a complete lunatic. He was like, no, you've got to be fucking Radiohead. You know, you've got to be the biggest band in the world. And, you know, you get sucked up into that. And it's also like, from our point of view, what we wanted to do needed money. You know, we wanted to be able to go on tour with, you know, two projectionists and, and uh, you know, somebody filming everything. And we wanted to do cool videos and we wanted to spend money on artwork and packaging and to have enough time to record and all of those things. And so it was like, you know, none of those, the smaller labels wanted to sign us um, and, you know, fair play to them. But then it was like, well, okay, what do we do? And it was the idea of having um sort of resources to do what we wanted to do and and the people that we worked with were great um at least initially you know fantastic and you know i think it's easy to be sort of down i guess on major labels but you know most of the people we worked with were incredibly passionate and excited about what we were doing and supported us and what we wanted to do because we did a bunch of crazy stuff you know we spent a gargantuan amount of sony's money um and they were totally supportive of us doing that so yeah. The the first time I seen you, I'm pretty sure it was um uh NME and it was like it must have been like the turn of the year and these were NME's big bands for the year. So you were in at pretty sure Cooper Temple Claws and I'm trying to hint of the other bands, but Cooper Temple Claws became a big band for me as well. Yeah and, and Obviously, the image was uh, you had the uh, the military jackets as well at that time, which you advertised yeah. as well. Yeah, where did that come about? Was a was that a conscious choice, or was that part of the the image with the name as well? No, not not really connected to the name. It was just we had this thing of, I guess, 
we we had this thing of like, oh, we're taking all this time about the projections for the shows. And then we had this thing of like, if we're all just like wearing random clothes, that was going to sort of take away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were like, oh, if we all look the same, then that sort of goes away. And it felt like, you know, and then it ended up being sort of bigger than we thought it would be because it was like you put the jacket on, it's like you're going to work. It's like, you know, you're a gang at that point, whatever's happened beforehand with, you know, getting drunk before the gig or arguments with your girlfriend at the time or whatever it is. It's like that goes away. You put the jacket on, it's like you're going to work. And it was really cool. It's like a sort of armor thing, especially as we didn't sound like many bands who were sort of playing at the time. You know, it's all these sort of garage rocky sort of things. And mm-hmm. and it felt like another reason to sort of stand apart. And basically we, we went to this... um like military surplus place in Portsmouth and me and Jimmy were trying to find, um, you know, enough for the band that were all the same. Plus we wanted them for the Ed and Matt who were doing the projections. So we needed, I believe it was like eight or something and we couldn't find enough. And then the guy who was running it was like, um, Oh, there's a back room. You can go and have a look, but it's a nightmare. And we're like, okay, cool. Uh, he said, look, here's the key. So you unlock this door and you walk into this basically this warehouse and, there were basically a pile, like a story high of jackets and bags and <laughs> flags. And, and we were climbing up and down these piles and then pulling out these jackets, being like, oh, I've got another one. I think this one will fit Jimmy. And, oh, this one's going to fit Ant or Simon or Paul or whatever. And anyway, I ended up finding, managing to find eight of them. And, um, yeah, it was really cool. It was, it was, they ended up having, I guess, maybe more of a thing than we thought they would at first. At first, it was just a visual thing yeah and then it ended up becoming something that i think um i think we felt had some sort of supernatural nonsense to it which was cool you know have you have you still got any of the jackets yeah i did they're actually in a box in my parents garage which did um you have tried them on lately uh i could if i yeah yeah i did i could just about get it on actually which <laughs> felt quite good i think the last time i was doing it in, um Back in Covent Garden, they get like the military circus back there. Yeah, yeah. I done one of the military jackets, hanging like one of the red ones, hanging. I look like a libertine, and see when you look in the mirror, you think, oh no, it, it doesn't work when you're a middle aged man. No, I know. I think, um, I mean, I was just glad I could get it on. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't <laughs> yeah. imagine it would look good, but it did go over the shoulders. So, so that was something at least. But yeah, I mean, my parents are trying to get me to get rid of all the gear now, so. Uh, eventually, I guess they'll go into a tip somewhere. But um, the, yeah, they still exist. Well, now. if you want to send anything up here, I'm sure, I'm sure you'd take some memorabilia off you. I mean, the smell of those at the time wasn't great, but I imagine after like what twenty years, they're probably not in the best state. So I would imagine. So <laughs> I'll save you from that. So obviously, signing for Sony, the first album, Lost Riots, and um, got to number twenty-one in the charts, which I think is an absolute travesty because it's. A total banger of an album. It's it's one of the albums that you just you listen from start to finish. You can you can't skip a song. It just play and it goes for there. What was the the was there a conscious effort there with the theme? Like was it a concept album as such? Like there, there was obviously the the American references all the way through it. Yeah, I think not. Not con. I mean, it's definitely not concept record. Um, I guess they were the references at the time. You know, like 
you write sort of batches of songs and and those ones were you know like we wrote we you know black dollar bills was the oldest thing on it um and when we wrote that was like the first song where i was like this is awesome like you know the first song i think we were all like oh that's something do you know what i mean um and then we had i remember we had a rehearsal and we wrote enemy's friends and red white in yeah in one rehearsal which was amazing like i mean that was one of the most sort of i guess um supernatural days ever doing music like you know, so I had the basis of a few bits, but we never played them and we just sat in the room for, I think we rehearsed for sort of eight hours or something. And at the end of it, we had these two songs, which were like, fuck, these are like proper, you know? Um, so no, I think, I think they just were all of this. That was the point I was, I was interested in all that stuff and, you know, flags and countries and war and all of that, I guess feels a bit um, teenage, maybe I guess at the time, but it was always had this thing for us as being, like more personal than the, all the stuff around it. And I get it. I totally get it. When people listen to it, it feels very sort of over the top and, um, you know, like bigger concepts than I was actually thinking about. It was, mm -hmm. it was much smaller than that for me. And a lot of it was just, um, you know, the feeling of the music and, and trying to do this sort of Morricone thing, but have us play it. You know, th that was the big, big thing for us was, um, well, for me anyway, was, trying to take soundtrack music and make it into songs. And that was that was the biggest aim. If there's any concept to that record at all, that's what it was. It was sound and sonics and weight and heaviness and stuff. It wasn't, um, it, you know, the lyrics are super, super important for sure, but it was way more about the sonic thing of it for me. Um, yeah. Which is yeah. obviously evident in the Black Amnesias. Yeah. Um, so where did that come? Is that when the... Uh, when, when was that written? I think we wrote it in Torag. Um, yeah, when we were doing demos, like a lot of the songs, the record were in those Torag sessions that we would go to Torag a bunch and demo songs. Um, and most, I think most of the record came from Torag. Um, when we we were just like, it was just super, super, super creative. And it was just, we'd set up all the mics and there was a piano there and you know, a drum kit and bass amps, guitars. It was just all set up so we could just do it. And that was always the best stuff we ever did was when we just had everything set up. So you could go, oh, do you know what would be good? Let's put this on it. And you didn't have to wait or mess around or, you know, um, yeah, we just like we could just do it. And so, yeah, Black Amnesia's, I mean, the original, the first demo of it, I think is about, I don't know, not even half speed. It's maybe a bit less than that. It's like really slow. Um, right. And then it slowly sped up and sped up and sped up. And then it was like the minute you were playing it fast, it was like, oh God, this is actually a thing. And now it, but it came from, I think like the initial like guitar stuff is very, to me, like super Morricone and kind of flashy sort of stuff. You know, I think we're, I'm just always trying to rewrite Morricone uh, Western soundtrack, but but have it not sound too Western. That was always the thing. It was like the really sort of Western-y aspects of it was not what we liked. We just liked how emotional it was. It was like really gut-punchy emotional. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, the, the album came out in June. Um, prior to the album coming out, obviously, Jimmy took his own life. Um, 
without putting too much pressure on you because I don't want to go over old ground. It's been no, that's fine. Uh, but what sort of effect did that have on the band? And the, obviously, with that happening in January, and then you've still got an album to release six months down the line. What sort of yeah. effect did that have on you? Um, it was, I mean, it's obviously like, you know, horrific and horrible. And um, it was um, like, I don't know, it's sort of when you say, oh, like, oh, such a shock, it sounds so lame, but um, it just was, you know, like we, we were, you know, we were all best mates and, um, you know, it was all about the future at that point. It really felt like mm -hmm. this is just the first thing we're doing and we can do whatever the fuck we want. Like we're going to make this record and we're going to move to London and we can start another band and not, not because we didn't want to be in our band, just like let's start another band and because we're listening to the Pogues loads. So let's start a band that sounds like the Pogues. And it was the same sort of spirit of inspiration and um, creativity that we'd started in, you know, where it's just so exciting. And so like, and whether that was, you know, records and bands, or it was like, a, you know, a jacket or a pair of jeans, or like, it was so, it's that age, I guess, you know, what we like in our 20, early 20s, and yeah, where you get inspired by stuff super easy, and, and it feels like the best thing in the world. And it was, you know, it was definitely, definitely, it didn't even feel like pressure when we were making the record, it was, it was, it was like a good pressure, like you just wanted to do something amazing. So it was really exciting. So then when that happened, it was just just like this sort of brick wall of just sort of terror and horror and like this sadness and yeah, you know, and and it was a different time. So I guess now you'd be bombarded with therapists and, and people and you know, I'm not blaming anybody that that didn't happen, but it was kind of weird, like we sort of stopped and left and um then it was all police stuff, you know, and all of that, which was horrific. And then uh, and then it was like, well, we got to finish the record. And I always knew we had to finish the record. It was never like, yeah, because you have that thing, which I guess everybody does who's been through that of sort of, you know, 50% sort of sadness and 50% anger about it happening. Um, we knew we needed to finish the record. So you, know, you go back and think that you can just sort of pick it up. And then you realize like, you know, I've just told this story a million times, but like the first time I walked into the live room at Air where we were going to finish the record, like, mm. um, you know, there's all of his gear is there and I just fucking broke down and walked out. I, was, I couldn't even see it. It was it was just physical, like a physical um, impossibility to be anywhere near that stuff. But, you know, then you get back to like, this is a good thing and he did amazing work on it and, you know, and I know that he would have wanted it to be heard and be finished and blah, blah, blah. So, so you get back into it, but you get back into it, I guess, with like bits missing from, from the band and bits missing from you and bits missing from, you know, how you feel you can sort of carry on every day and, you know, and that gets sort of, you know, drunk and boozy and dark and all the rest of it. And not, not to some awful extent, that's not what I'm saying, but like it was, uh, yeah, it was really tough, but it was also, we had this thing that we were really proud of and we thought was great. So at that point, that was a good thing that we had coming to do, you know, and um, something to focus on and, and one another, I guess, you know, but again, it's like, it was, it was sort of a different time. Like, so I'm not sure whether we were as, you know, 
chatty maybe to one another as maybe would have been helpful maybe i guess boys would be now then that maybe we went then but yeah you know. i mean that's certainly in the if you look at things nowadays everything's mental health and totally you know, yeah talk which uh, that wasn't that wasn't the message back then no and i think i just listened to um um this uh podcast thing about um Joy Division turning into a uh, new order. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking about them a lot of the time. Obviously, of course, you fucking would, but listening to the podcast the other day and just being like, I mean, for them, like, there was not even, you know, they were just like, oh, see you Monday then? And just expected to get back on with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, God knows how awful it must have been for them. And, you know, and it was their singer and, like, and, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how anybody deals with it, but definitely I think probably, and God, I would never wish it on anybody on planet Earth, but if that happened to a band now, then hopefully they maybe get a bit more help than than we got or than, you know, the New Order and Joy Division got because, mm-hmm. God, it's, it's, like, it's, it's brutal. And especially if you're in that thing of doing this thing that you love so much and it's so it's this a magical, amazing dream that you that came true. Uh-huh. And then it becomes fifty percent. Oh yeah, but it's also the worst thing that ever happened to me, you know. And that's that's tough, I think. You know? talk, talking about the help, obviously the irony of that is that, that probably at the time when that happened to you was at a time when there there was so much money about in the music industry that could have went to help me. Whereas now, when that yeah, if that happens, I probably know the money for for bands to just. Yeah, quite, quite, yeah, quite possibly. I mean, again, like I'm not casting shade on anybody. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Anybody at all? It's um, it was a different time. We did what we wanted to do. I, I mean, me especially. I was a stubborn motherfucker, and I was going to do whatever I wanted to do, and no way I was going to stop. And if somebody said, "No, you need to take this time," I'd be like, "No, absolutely not," because I didn't want to. Like none of us wanted to. We wanted to finish it, and we wanted to, you know, we wanted to do the thing that we'd worked really 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 hard for so it's nobody's fault you know it, it was just a you know an unimaginable thing to experience and I think you know maybe you get older and you kind of come to terms with it and um uh you know find a way through it I guess but it never goes away yeah you know, I thought it was interesting actually listening to that sorry to wang on about new order but you know, they were like, you never get over it. Like, it never goes. It's never gone. It's always, always, always there. Um, and it it sucks, because I think he would have had a blast, you know, the idea of not getting to go to America with Jimmy and Japan and God. Like, and, you know, just records. Like, a lot of the time it's records or TV shows, and I'm like, God, I wish he'd have seen this. He would have loved this, um, which I guess is what people do with friends who aren't there anymore, you know, for whatever reason. So what sort of what sort of tribute would you pay to Jimmy as a as like a person, a colleague in the band? What would you say his qualities were? Um he was I mean, it's such a sort of silly feature, I guess, but I mean he was so vital to us. I mean, when he wasn't there, that was I guess the sort of looking back at it now, the sort of start at the end, even then, like we did amazing stuff afterwards and and got to experience some amazing things but just personality wise in the band he was just brilliant he just sat between me and Anne, um and was this sort of buffer between us and 
you know, when he wasn't there, it was like me and Ant again, not against one another, that's too dramatic, but just sort of like dick, 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 a little sort of yeah. butting of heads a little bit. And he was really good at being the person in between. You know, he wasn't writing a huge amount of stuff or whatever, but he was the guy in the same way, Paul, I'd be like, Paul, I'm playing piano. Can you play these root notes? And Paul would be like, yeah. And same with Jimmy, I'd be like, dude, could you play these notes? You do what you want around them, but like, could you just make sure you're doing those? And he'd be like, yeah, totally. Like, that was his role. And like, those people often don't get the credit. I think they probably deserve in a band. Um, and, but more than that, it's just like personality. Like, he was super fun and he was into, you know, fashion and girls and, and, and stuff, you know, just culture and things happening. Like, he was that guy. And, he was that guy from when I first met him, even when I didn't like him very much, I still thought he was pretty cool. You know, like he could skate and he was super good looking and, you know, he was a singer in a brash metal band uh, who I thought was terrible, but I still thought it was fucking cool that he could do that, you know, yeah. um, and scream like that and do all of that. And uh, yeah, he was an amazing, amazing dude, like tricky and complicated and difficult and a pain in the ass, but in the same way that, you know, I'm sure people would say about me, you know, or whatever, yeah. but, you know, he was my best sounds mate. Sounds like everyone in my, my pals. Sorry? Yeah, it sounds like everyone in my friends. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's that, isn't it? You know, I think I think it's tricky because when people aren't there anymore, you end up deep diving on their personality or, or having to explain them to somebody else. And I think always people come out sounding way more interesting than they actually are. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but but he was, to be fair, he, he was an, he was a really interesting, uh, interested dude. And, um, you know, and oh God, I wish he was here. It'd be brilliant. Like, um, but he's not. But, um, you know, he was a good, yeah, he was cool. He was cool. So, Going on, obviously, 2005, like the album came out, uh, 2005, you spent most of that year um, writing the follow-up. Uh, you only played, for what I'm led to believe, a handful of gigs because yeah. you know that's writing. In retrospect, do you think maybe if you'd had a bit of time off and come back, it would have prolonged your career? Um, no, I, th I think... I think from our point of view now, um, looking back at it, it was like we wanted a break. We wanted to stop when we stopped on Lost Riots. Um, I think at that point, that was like, right, we need a break. We need to stop. But then the initial idea was we're going to make a record really quick because we felt we took too long to make the first record. We were like, oh, the second record, we're going to do it like super, super quick. And then that just didn't happen. And it took a fucking ever. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but that was the killer. Like, that was just like, what are we doing? Like, this so, is taking so long. And it was our fault, basically. But, um, yeah, it took so long. And we just wanted to play. I, I really, uh, after we stopped, I think we all reached a point where we were like, God, we don't really want to be in the studio now. We'd always loved being in the studio, but it was like, mm -hmm. I can just go and play some shows. And it was sort of never really an option. And I, I, I still look at it now and think, like, we never played enough shows. We should have just gone out and played more. But, you know, I, I think we were fraying by the end of the Lost Riots pouring, even though we didn't even play that many shows. But for us, I think we were a bit fragile. So I think that was probably the reason we were like, yeah, we're done. Let's stop. But what we should have done is carried on playing shows, uh, you know, take a short break, play some shows, and maybe come in and out of the studio and play shows, and we didn't. Mm -hmm. 
and it felt like a really, really long time when we came back. Can you can you recall how many times you played Scotland? Because I never I never seen you obviously I'll get to a, a wee story about oh, really? it. Later, but where are you in Scotland? Um just outside Glasgow. But oh, obviously right. I mean at the time like you know when you're in a group of pals and everybody likes different bands and of the states but nobody else no, no, <laughs> no that they didn't that's like a, them, but that's perfect. Um, yeah, one person in the group likes us, and everyone's like, "Oh, fuck yeah. that whiny twat." Yeah, no, it's it's not that they didn't like you, but nobody was kind of big into you like I was, so nobody would come to a gig with me. And I mean, if it was nowadays, I, I hate taking people to gigs. No, I, I prefer to go myself because you're only there to please yourself. But at, at that time, I wouldn't went to a gig myself, so. I never got to see his live. Ah, oh, really? Uh, okay. Obviously, as I say, I'll I'll touch on that later on. Um, but how many times did you play in Scotland? Uh, we 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 played actually probably quite a bunch. Like every tour we did, we played Scotland, and a lot of the time, I think we played a couple of gigs in Scotland. We always the crowds in Scotland were always so good. Yeah, uh, so good. And I, I'm not just saying that because you're Scottish, but. I think we were really surprised that we went down well up north. A lot of the times we went down better up north than we did further south. Like London was, you know, Portsmouth gigs, obviously hometowny-ish, but they were difficult because that everyone feels, I don't know, a bit more entitled or something about because it's our band, so they were maybe they were fun, but they were never our favorite gigs. London felt like okay, cool. London, we'll get a crowd and we play big places, and so that was cool. But I mean, our best gigs we ever did, and the ones that probably meant the most to us were when we played Manchester. Like we get upgraded venues in Manchester and stuff. Mm. Crowds in Manchester really liked us, and when we played in Scotland, like you know, we played. I mean, we must have played King Tut's three, four times. And it was always the big gustingness. We were never big enough to play Barrowlands, which would have been fucking unreal. Um, always, that was that was one of the few, like, that was sort of a bit of a dream. Like, God, if we could play Barrowlands, that would be amazing. But we were never big enough to. But the gigs we did at King Tut were unreal. Like, unreal shows. And uh, Liquid Rooms in uh, Edinburgh, we played a few times. We played similar size, and at the King Tuts as well. Yeah, and we played there. We supported Granddaddy, I think, was the first gig we did there. Right. And we came back and played it ourselves, and we sold it out. And it was like, oh my god, it's amazing. We played a gig in Dundee once, which was amazing. Um, like proper crowds, like people going crazy. And I remember we had one really weird gig at King Tuts where. Um, we thought we were going down really badly and we walked off and I was like, oh, it was terrible. Like crowd went into it. Because usually the crowd sort of went bonkers, uh, you know, quite extreme, like people jumping up and down and mosh pits mm-hmm. and all of this, which was cool. And the when you leave the stage at King Tut's, I don't know if you know, but there's like basically the doors behind the drum kit. So uh-huh. you walk backwards and then you can just walk out of the venue and walk up to the, like your bus is parked at the top of the hill behind the venue. And we walked out, we were all like, oh, fucking terrible. I don't know why the crowd was shit. The crowd's always been brilliant. They were terrible. And our tour manager at the time, Ross, who's this very, very, very hard-bitten Glaswegian guy, and that's like screaming, what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, what? They hated us. And he's like, have you heard this? And he literally did, you know, like a 
you know, almost famous moment or something, just opens the door and the crowd are going absolutely ballistic, calling for a uh, for an encore. And we were just <laughs> in complete shock, but he was like, no, yeah, I think you just stunned them into silence or something, which is, uh, you know, felt weird for a Scottish crowd, you know, I think that's yeah. Pretty- you know, it seemed a bit silly, but so yeah, we went back on. I think we played like a four four song encore, like we were like Bon Jovi or something. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was really cool. It was amazing playing through. It really, really was. Yeah. I mean, I, I think with the Scottish crowds, if 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 a band shows the, their passion and that they want to be there, and just the as long as you can see that they're a, a real band and they're, they're in it for the real reasons, the, the Scottish crowd will get behind them. Okay. Yeah, I, t- I, I don't know what it was. I think we were just like, we were always really surprised and really grateful like that they were so into it. Because I think as well, like, like I love Mogwai and, I mean, Jimmy loved Mogwai a lot as well. And it was always like, oh, God, you know, you're in sort of, it felt, it felt like, oh, we're in Mogwaiville. Not that we sounded like Mogwai, but, you know, they gave us a lot, I guess. Uh-huh. I mean, I think for me with them, when I was a kid, like, and the Britpop thing was happening, which I was into a load of that, but I just loved the fact that there was this band of sort of drunk uh, Scottish kids who were just doing this, like, kind of sneery fuck you stuff and just doing entirely their own thing. And I, I think I took, so much from that just that sort of attitude and that vibe of like this is happening and we're going to do the complete opposite because that's gross and i think that yeah. gave us so much even if musically you know i suppose you know a bit of post rocky stuff with both of us but i don't we sound anything like mogwai but that attitude thing i was always so inspired by and 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 still am like you know i'll, I'll watch every, anything to do with mogwai ever i just think they're great and i just think their attitude is just super super inspiring so so the fact we went down Scotland always, in my head, I always tied it together with Mogwai. I think I always hoped that I'd bump into them one day and I never did, so. <laughs> he's one of them, uh, Stuart's on a, he's on a, intermittently, he's on a Celtic podcast from time to time that I listen to. No, oh, is he? a Celtic fan, so I, he just pops up, they do, they do podcasts in the pub and he just appears from time to time and puts his two pence in. Yeah, I think he's great. He's really funny, and um, his book's brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. His uh, autobiography is fantastic. I think he's just—I think they do it right. They do it in the right way. It's super inspiring. Yeah. So the second album, then, obviously, one of the—is the, it the lead single for it? Sing it out. Um, uh, yeah. That's the one with the video where he's getting the electric shocks. Yeah. Yeah. How how did that feel? <laughs> it didn't feel good. Yeah. Um, it was um we we got offered two video treatments for that video, um and I was super paranoid because I was like we're cursed and everything's awful. Like whatever we do, we're gonna die or something. So one of them was uh, you get hypnotized. Um, and we were, and I was like, I'm not doing that because I'll have some sort of nervous breakdown or something, and uh, and you know something bad will happen. And the other one is you get electrocuted, and I was like, we can't do that either because one of us will die and have a heart attack or something. Um, but anyway, somehow it ended up being oh, we're doing the electrocution one, and the hypnotism one, uh, the Kings of Leon did uh, yeah. about about six months later, which was quite funny. Um, but yeah, so we got electrocuted all day and it was horrific. 
absolutely horrific. So they're those, you know, massage pad things, I guess, and they uh -huh. vibrate your muscles. And we we had sort of four machines on each one of us. And then Matt and Ed, who did our projections and do our videos, uh, did our videos, uh, they were in charge of them. So they'd be like, we're playing. And then they would hit a button and it would make your arms spasm or your legs spasm. <laughs> and the worst thing is that the comments under the thing on YouTube or whatever, it's like, oh, this is all fake or whatever. And it 100% was not fake. It was yeah. very, very real and very painful. Um, and then at the end of the day, we, we stuck them all over them and just sat there dialing up the ampage to hurt them for a good sort of 20 minutes afterwards to get our revenge. But yeah, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. And also I massively regret the fact that for some reason I decided to dress like a snooker player in that video. So I wish I had done that. The album came out and didn't they do as well as the first album for whatever reason? Because again, I thought that it was strong. Uh, the song it was end is it the church choir that's got the... Yeah. The actual choir. Where's that choir from? Is it Germany or Austria or something? So there's a choir on Sing It Out, uh, Good Fight, and something else. They're not actually on Church Good Fight. fight as Anta, it's a good fight. Yeah, good, a good fight. Yeah, so basically we did a bunch of the album in Prague. Well, sort of about two hours outside Prague. Uh-huh. Um, because we want to sort of go away and do it and have a bit of an adventure like we did on the first one. And orchestras are cheap uh, in the Czech Republic. So we did all the strings there and we had a male voice choir um, who struggled with some of the pronunciations, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which I yapped on about before. But um, yeah, so, so the choir stuff and then the one on Good Fight is we got a bunch of mates thing on it. So, um, I mean, I can't even remember who now, but like Andy from Razorlight sang on it, Curtin from Ziggoros sang on it. Um, yeah, a bunch of people. We just sort of said, oh, we, we just send them a thing and do you want to sing on it? And we sort of threw it all into the thing. And then, yeah, Church Choir hasn't got the a choir on it, but um, Church Choir was supposed to be a duet. Um, and I'd written it for... Um, uh, Hope Sandoval from, um, uh, no, I've just got Hope Sandoval and the Warm Inventions, um, from Matita, sorry, to sing on it. Mm -hmm. um, I thought she had the most beautiful, amazing voice, and I wrote her a letter uh, and just got a reply, not from her, I guess, from her management saying no. Uh, <laughs> so she didn't sing on it. And then somehow somebody put me in touch with, or set up a meeting with um uh, Beth Gibbons from Portishead mm -hmm. and uh, so I had this meeting with Beth from Portishead in the famous Cock pub uh, um, in Islington and um, I was so nervous like oh my god it's like Beth from Portishead like what the fuck am I doing here talking to her and um, and we basically got absolutely battered drunk one afternoon and then ne there was never any mention whatsoever about doing singing on this song and then eventually I was like, I probably need to sort of actually ask, like, are you up for doing this song then? And I sort of nudged that question out there and she went, um, Sam, I'm in Portishead. Can you imagine me singing the line, uh, the saddest songs I know where they come from? It would be completely ridiculous and everyone would just laugh. And I was like, yeah, okay. 
so yeah so she said no but uh she was absolutely fantastic and um I saw the other day on Instagram, she's putting out a record, which is amazing because I think she's an absolute genius. And uh, it was just incredible. Like one of the things that I'll remember forever, I got to sit in a pub and get drunk with Beth from Portishead. What an honor. Amazing. Brilliant. I mean, that, that's what I feel like whenever I'm recording these um, episodes of my podcast because sitting, sitting speaking to your heroes through the, the years, man. So I, I can understand how you felt then. Um, obviously, two thousand six, and you played Tina Park. So yeah, and then Wedding in Leeds, which ended up in your last gig. But two thousand and six, Tina Park. I'd been to Tina Park ten years in a row. Both of the states were playing. I'd never seen these, and I thought, after that, I'm I'm going to see both of the states. I've been badgering my pals all weekend. Um, I seen the Libertines the day before. The first time I seen the Libertines as well. Um, oh, nice. Where Pete Docherty, obviously, it was Anthony. Anthony Rosamondo was playing with him. Yeah. Um, and my pal, he, my pal's gran had died. It was my pal's gran's funeral before we went to be in the park. So he was in a bad way. And I spent the, the Friday looking after him at the park, making sure he was all right. Um, Saturday went to see Libertines and then I ended up with a big bag of mushrooms. Uh, mushrooms and ecstasy and rattling all this and I, I passed it and my pals, <laughs> my pals woke me up. He says, right, that's us, we're, we're going. I says, I is he hoping the States? And they're like, no, you've missed them. I says, what do you mean? <laughs> and they're like, it's Monday morning. And that's just for Saturday night, for the Saturday night to the Monday morning. I just kind of, I've got neighbors. So the one band I wanted to see in the Sunday, Hope of the States, and I missed them because I slept through. Oh my God. Oh, sorry, man. Uh, we played then, the right gig, actually, to be fair. That was good, that's fair. And then like, the next month, basically, he's, he's chucked it, and like, that, that's, yeah. that's my chances taken away. The one chance I got, and I, I wasted it with a big bag of mushrooms. Wow. Well, what's that shit? Drugs kill dreams, brother. <laughs> <laughs> sure. oh, I'm sorry. That sucks. That sure, was a good I, show, actually. That was a really cool show. That was that was great. I remember that one. That was really fun. So that, that maybe put a bit of pressure on you to maybe just reform with an anniversary gig or something. Just yeah. um, enough up here. Yeah. I mean, talk to my wife. She says that's what I should do. So, <laughs> um, after after this the splat, um, lots of different projects in Northwestern. Yeah, um, race that gospel, and then my favorite dark houses, which I I think probably dark houses is the closest to like musically to Hope of the States. Yeah, because that was the first one. I mean, that was that was after the band. Yeah, those songs. Yeah, that houses. But so was there a on Spotify like the releases seem to be? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it was that was like nothing ever happened with it. But that was the stuff that I did after the band. Um, Maybe I can't remember when Troubles was, but yeah, maybe sort of around the Troubles time that was sort of happening or. It was after that, I'm not sure, but yeah, that was the song stuff I did just after the band. Yeah, 
So who was on Dark Houses then? Who was was that just you yourself? Who who else did you have? No, it was um Simon from Hope of the States and Paul the bassist um from Hope of the States and then John Winter who'd been in the Open. Right. So the Open had split up and then John had come on tour with us and done um the projections and stuff for um because Matt and Ed were doing other stuff by that point. So he did all that stuff, and then he's an incredible guitarist, like incredibly talented guitarist. Um, and so, yeah, so we did the Dark Houses stuff um, in Britannia Row um, in London. And, yeah, just kind of like with, I guess, the whole bunch of the stuff that I've done since the band, it was just like never quite right, maybe overthought a bit much and mm-hmm. took too long and... Um, you know, I think you suddenly realize, I think, you know, not, not from an arrogant point of view, but I think you think, oh, I was in a band, like it'll be fine. And then you realize it's really not like things move on really quick. Um, and people don't really give a shit, um, quickly. Um, and I think there was some cool stuff on that record, but it was just never sort of nothing quite happened with it. And then it was like years later, the, uh, what they called, uh, Lost Music Club or whatever. And they literally just sent me an email, I think, and said, oh, can we have a chat about putting the record out? And I was like, okay. Like, and it's basically been sat on a hard drive for, you know, 10 years or something. But um, so then, yeah, so then they wanted to put it out and I was like, it's sort of nobody cares, but if you want to, then fill your boots. So that, that's why that ended up coming out. Yeah. Well, I think it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, man. Beautiful. Well, it's got, it's got. I think my wife's favorite song I've ever written is on that record, so I can't be mean about it. But um, I think it's uh, what's it called? Sparrows. She really likes. I think the lyrics on that record are fucking cool. I think it's if 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 you had it, you know, it's always that thing of like, oh, if I had another chance to do it, yeah, I'd just go in and bash it out, and I think it'd be a great record. It just feels a bit fucked over and a bit fussy because by its nature of the way it was done. But um, but yeah, I mean, there's some there's some good songs on. It, I yeah. think absolute class. So, at what point then did you did you think to yourself, I'm just going to chop music completely and um, get into cooking? Um, it wasn't so much, uh, yeah, actually, no, maybe it was. I think I did think, yeah, I'm just not going to do music anymore. It was basically, I got a message from a guy, James, who's now my business partner and best mate, um, who basically said, uh, I really liked your band back in the day. Uh, I really liked your writing because I was writing about food for the Quiesis music website. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to John and Luke who are, um, fighting the good fight amazing amazing people and um yeah john who i'd known who he'd interviewed me a couple of times and was always like the loveliest music journalist ever like we'd talk about records and then he'd send me these pre-release copies of like silver man's iron records and stuff he was such a lovely lovely dude um anyway so i was writing about food and james uh had read it and liked it and was like oh do you want to do a night at my supper club or whatever. And I think I sort of ignored him for a while. And then my wife was like, you're not doing anything else. So um, you should do. And anyway, we ended up doing this supper club thing together and he's a really good cook. Um, I can cook a bit, but um, yeah, we did the supper club thing and we did that together for like a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then um, he was like, oh, should we open a restaurant? And 
sort of wasn't doing anything else and it felt a bit silly so yeah let's do something stupid so we just, we did that eight years ago um yeah got to pay the bills somehow as <laughs> a massive career change though isn't it for, for front man in a band to um owning a restaurant yeah uh, as well as that then after that came a podcast about cooking is that off the back of pigeon then nearly yeah, I think it was like, I think we were, I think I actually probably introduced James to podcast. I can't remember what I was listening to at the time. I think it was like the, you know, Kevin Smith, the film director. Uh-huh. I think he had like a podcast or some mates of his did. And it was really early in like podcast. And I was like, James, do you love this podcast? No, what's a podcast? You know, it was that dull sort of thing that people say now. But um so when we were prepping for the supper club and stuff, we'd listen to podcasts. And he was like, oh, we could do this. We should do one about food stuff. Um, and that's what he's really good at that, being like, we should do this. And I'm like, oh, we're not doing this. But he's, he's that guy. He has, he has sort of go-getting or whatever. <laughs> I don't know what the word is for that. Um, but he's like, oh, we should do it. So, yeah, so we started doing it and started talking to people on food and um and I was always like, I loved it. Obviously, it's fun to talk about food and stuff. But I was always a bit like, yeah, I always wanted to undercut it a bit. So I sort of liked asking people whether they believed in ghosts and stuff. That got sort of a bit more interesting to me. I sort of liked that side of it. And then as it went on, and like, God knows how many episodes we did of that thing. But, you know, it ended up being a thing where if we didn't just have a silly conversation between the two of us for long enough, people would be annoyed. Which I think yeah. is really cool, because I think that's the thing that people diss podcasts for. You know, you don't need two, you know, middle-class white guys having a funny chat between them. But I think I think we sort of earned it over over time that people actually enjoyed that part of it. And, you know, and some of the stories and stuff that now I'm like, oh, I'm really glad that was recorded, you know, like, um, you know, you know, there was one episode where I was saying about this girl that I bumped into in a park and she asked me to read out her exam results to her. She didn't know what they were and uh, they weren't what she'd hoped they were. So it's basically this girl in hysterics in a park and <laughs> me trying to make her feel better. <laughs> and, and the fact that I'll never forget that because it's recorded in a podcast, I think it's really cool. And that's sort of a bit more interesting to me because I'm self-obsessed, I guess. But, you know, then a conversation with, you know, Tom Carriage or something. But Tom Carriage is lovely and that, and that was great. But I think we, I think we, we ended up reaching a point where it's like, there was bits of it that were fun and bits of it were just like, we're kind of, we're an extension of somebody's PR agency or something, which is not Tom Carriage, but, um, but you know, certain, certain people, you feel like you're just sort of um, ticking a box for that. And it, that didn't quite feel like what we wanted to do, but that, that is what you have to do, I guess, to get people to listen to something. Right. You could definitely, you could definitely feel the chemistry between you and James. Which obviously he says he's your best friend. Yeah, uh, you can definitely that that comes across. Uh, one thing that came up, obviously, as I said, I listened to that Tom Kerridge episode just because it was like one of the ones to towards the yeah. end. Um, there's a bit where he mentioned something about golf or something about playing golf. <laughs> and I, thought, I thought, am I hearing this right? And because that's just like one of my. Um, music legends and he's playing lines of golf so is that when when did golf come about i just it feels awful like to admit that in public you know because it's because <laughs> uh, i get it i get it and if, if if i'd have known 
back then that I would get into golf, I'd be like, oh, God, you're a fucking idiot. Um, and that's really embarrassing. And and I get it. I get it. I mean, I've broken my own heart by getting into it. So I know how you feel if you liked our band. But, um, yeah, I mean, my wife, I <laughs> can't believe I married this guy in Herbal States. Now he plays golf. But, um, yeah, no, the, the whole bullshit around golf I don't like at all. Like, all of that is fucking gross and stupid and silly. What I do like about it is um, if you play golf in the right places, um, I know this feels like a weak excuse, but this is genuinely how I feel. Like you play golf in the right places with the right people. Uh, it can be quite a sort of magical thing. And that's if you play golf by the sea, in the elements, out in the arse end of nowhere, with your mates, in the weather and the wind and the rain. And uh, that's fucking cool. I got no interest in posh people's golf on, you know, uh, beautiful manicured gardens. Like that's not of interest to me, but you know, weather and wildness and, you know, the Arsenal awesome Narrowing Island or mm-hmm. um, Northern Ireland or Scotland is there's some beautiful stuff. And uh, that that's the part of it I like. I don't like all the, like, gross, posh, um, racist bullshit side of it. But, yeah, yeah I appreciate it. Incredibly lame. And that's a relatively weak excuse for it, but... That, no, that's I, I think you've managed to talk <laughs> your Yeah, just before we go, obviously, I've seen... Did you do some writing for film or is that stuff that you're kind of working on? Yeah, I did. Um, so I, I shot a short film um, last summer, end of last summer, um, which I will finish eventually. I sort of hit a bit of a brick wall with it. But, um, but I shot it, yeah. So um, it was all shot on iPhone. Um, it's sort of an abstract sci-fi kind of... I guess, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of an abstract sci-fi thing uh, that I shot on on iPhone uh, <laughs> on the South Downs um, last summer. So yeah, eventually I will finish that. Yeah. And would there be any plans for anything else like that? Is that something that you would want to pursue? Or... I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of do loads of stuff, like creativity stuff, I guess, like. Um, I just go through phases with it. I think I'm at a moment now where it's like it feels like if I'm doing something, it's a manic phase as opposed to something that I should be doing. So I'm a bit oh about it. Um, you know, I could like paint for a bunch and then I get bored of that and I don't do that and do the film thing or do music and um. So yeah. So I don't know. But I mean, eventually, hopefully, it'll get finished. I don't know. I, I think there's a big part of me that thinks like don't it end up like dead with a bunch of stuff that nobody's seen or heard or seen or whatever, you know, that would suck, but I'm not quite sure how to get from the point of making it to getting it so people can experience it. I don't know. Or who cares? But, you know, I don't know. Um, lastly, before we go, obviously we've been the restaurant owner. How, how tough was that kind of during COVID? Um, COVID was actually, I think we got off light in COVID. Um, it's way harder now. Like now it's a nightmare. COVID was, we did a thing in the restaurant where you could come and get a homing pigeon. So pigeon at home. So people could come and collect it and take it home. So that kept the lights on there. Um, in the sandwich shop, we could sell out of the hatch once, you know, people were allowed out and about. So again kept the lights on and we didn't have to let people go which was fantastic 
Um, and now it's really tough. Now it's just like, you know, people don't have money in their pockets to go and spend on things. So, um, yeah, it's tough. Really, really tough. Um, we'll, 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 we'll do what we can and fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm coming down in the summer, so I was hoping to um, at some point come into London and maybe come and see you and, and get a wee tasty pageant. Yeah, definitely. Well, let me know if you're coming, and I'll make sure they take care of you. I'm not there very often, but um, but I'll make sure they take care of you. You get yeah. you get the VIP treatment, of course. Just send me an email. Brilliant. Um, obviously, with the podcast we called Time for Heroes, I don't know if you can remember when I initially spoke to you about that. I asked my guest to pick four heroes to come for dinner. You did. Perfect question for yourself with the restaurant. Four. It's not. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's an absolute fucking nightmare. Is there any rules around it? This is what I was thinking when I was trying to think about it. No rules. Dead or alive, they can be for whatever aspect of life you want. They can be family, they can be friends, they can be musicians, they can be golfers if you would like. <laughs> I don't, you don't. I know that's gutted to you. I get it. I get it. I feel you. I really do. I'm really sorry. But um, trust me, on occasion it can be quite a... Cool thing. Uh, I'm not going to die on that hill, but um, yeah, I did think about it, and it's terrible because you end up thinking about like, oh, just people I want to talk to versus people who are really fun to just sit around the table with and eat loads of food and get drunk with. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I probably can I just I'm just going to look at my notes because I wrote down loads of people. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Um, just so, I mean, no, it's tough as well because you end up with like bunch of crusty old white guys sat around the table which may be a bit boring but actually look okay well this is just honest 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 like without that much thought even though there has been loads of thought uh i would pick ricky j the magician uh-huh um do you know ricky j no the only magician i know is uh, the magic mod you have had done okay <laughs> um Who's so Ricky, Ricky J is he's dead. He died, uh, I think, nineteen ninety eight or something. Right. But uh, you can watch, like, go, honestly, like, you should go the minute you go off this, go on YouTube and watch um, anything you can find about Ricky J. There's a documentary about him, um, which I can't remember what it's called, but it's like the best documentary ever. And he was this incredible slate of hand magician artist comedian like it's just a genius and mm -hmm. seems like one of the most entertaining people on planet earth super super bright super interesting i don't give a shit about magic but like he is like a genius like amazing uh -huh. uh, so i think he'd be an entertaining dude around the table yeah definitely uh secondly just because there's a few uh, he's probably up close with of one of the people I'd like to meet more than anybody on earth, but he'd probably think I was a dick. But I think he's a genius. Uh, be Richard D. James, Apex Twin. Uh huh. Uh, I'm not sure how much fun he'd be around the table. I think he boozes a bit. So maybe he could get a bit of wine down him and maybe so that would be fun. Uh huh. Um, so yeah, uh, Ricky J, Apex Twin, Bjork. Brilliant. Uh, uh, I just think she's amazing um, and super interesting and always seems quite funny and like she doesn't take herself too seriously. 
Uh, and I think she's genius, absolute genius. Um, so yeah, uh, Ricky J. Richard, uh, too many people now. So now I've got that. Huh? It's always hard once people come to the end, they can't whittle it down. I don't mind honouring mentions or whatever. Well, yeah, because then honorary mentions, then it's like, well, Frank Ocean would be interesting, Joaquin Phoenix, David Lynch, but I think David Lynch wouldn't be that much fun. Damon Albarn would be amazing, but a bit cocky. Uh, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, but he's dead. I don't want two ghosts around the table. Paul Thomas Anderson would be cool. Jenny Savile. Sarah Lucas, who'd be in today? Uh, I'm going to shut up. Sorry, this is going to be boring. Uh, Bill Drummond from the KLF. Brilliant. Uh, I think he's fucking interesting and funny. And uh, and he makes soup all the time, doesn't he? Or at least he did a thing for a while where he's making soup. So he could bring soup for the first course. Uh, and I think that would make everybody else laugh. So, you know, you start off a dinner with a laugh. It's probably good fun. So, um, yeah, Ricky Jay. Apex Twin, Bjork, and Bill Drummond. I feel so hipster, what's what. Twat. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that, that's, that's why. I... That's brilliant. And it, I mean, all of the people haven't been packed as well. Um, first, first time packs for um, all four of them, I think. Oh, really? Oh, well, that's cool. But honestly, if nothing else, like just track down anything you can find on YouTube uh, of Ricky J. Like he's honestly like amazing. You don't care about magic, but he's just super interesting. He's amazing. Yeah, I'll, uh, have, I'll definitely have a look for that. I'll I'll text you the name of the documentary and the um. There's a show as well. Uh, Rick Jane's Fifty Two Assistants. Right. It's, it's honestly it's unbelievable. It's amazing. So cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check. Uh, it sounds good. Uh, and what what you're gonna cook for them? Obviously, Bill's bringing the soup. What else is going to be on the menu for us? Oh, God, have I got a cook? Well, I don't know if you want to get somebody in for your restaurant or whatever. I don't know how you want to do it. Uh, no, I wouldn't get anybody from there. I'm betting there. Um, <laughs> that's not true. Um, no, I don't know. Nah, too much pressure, isn't it? I'd rather get drunk. I'd rather just go to a restaurant with them. Can I do that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah as long as you're paying, you're, you're fine. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, because I, I just rather get drunk. And the thing is, if I'm sat at a table with those three, like, I'm not saying a word, I'm just like listening to them go at one another. I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds like a a wild night. Um, I think Bjork would be really interesting to spend a bit of time with. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah, she is, she's something else, absolute genius. And Bill Drummond with the, the stories about the KLF, like to see the money and all that. That's um, well seen. He, he'll not be paying for in the restaurant anyway because he's got the cash. He's bumped it up. Yeah, exactly. But I absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, no, thank you, thank you for inviting. Very kind of you. You were very uh, modest when I spoke to you about it, and you said, "Who who would want to listen to me?" Um, but I think you'll be surprised. A lot of my listeners have been. I've been um, really enthused when I, I told them that you were coming on. So, oh, well, let, let, let's hope your download numbers don't drop through the floor. Uh, <laughs> if they do, I can only apologize. But I, an absolute pleasure having you on, Sam. It's been no, amazing. thanks for inviting me, man. Thank you. Brilliant. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. 
If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes Podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Enjoy.